Welcome to the Anesthesiology Journal Podcast, an audio interview of study authors and editorialists. Hello, I am Bobby Jean Schweitzer, an associate editor for Anesthesiology, and you are listening to an Anesthesiology Podcast designed for physicians and scientists interested in the research that appears in the May 2023 issue of the journal. With us is Dr. Emmanuel Doucette. Dr. Giuseppe is the first author of an article titled Association of Preoperative Growth Differentiation Factor 15 Concentrations in Postoperative Cardiovascular Events After Major Non-Cardiac Surgery. Dr. Emmanuel Giuseppe is an assistant clinical professor and researcher in the Department of Medicine at the University of Montreal in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and an associate scientist at the Population Health Research Institute in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Giuseppe. Thank you, Dr. Schweitzer. Thanks for inviting me to share our work. So I don't know how many of our listeners um, are familiar with growth differentiation factor 15, or what we will, from this point forward, refer to as GDF-15. Can you tell us what this is? In brief, GDF-15 is a cytokine. It's a member of the transforming growth factor beta cytokine superfamily. Um, and GDF-15 has been found to increase sharply in response to physiological stress associated with inflammation, tissue injury, and hypoxia in various tissues. For example, cardiac myocytes, macrophages, vascular muscle cells, endothelial cells, and adipocytes can all produce GDF-15 in response to various oxidative or metabolic stress and inflammation. And in particular, in cardiovascular diseases, cardiac injury results in the induction of GDF-15, and it's thought to be a response that is cardioprotective. But we also know that levels of GDF-15 increase will correlate with the severity of underlying cardiovascular diseases. So in brief, GDF-15 is a cytokine associated with inflammation and in particular cardiovascular disease. This is a long-term sort of risk predictor or elevation, or there was evidence previously that this is elevated in the perioperative period or with MACE or MINS? Well, there has been several conditions outside of the perioperative setting that have been associated with GDF-15 elevation. Um, it has been found to be elevated in stable coronary artery disease, acute coronary syndrome, heart failure. Most of the studies come from outside of the perioperative setting. We know it's also elevated in patients with stroke. It predicts the risk of recurrent MI and stroke. It can be also be elevated in patients with chronic kidney disease and predict the deterioration of kidney disease. Um, we've also seen elevated in cancer. Hmm. In terms of surgery, um, there's been two studies on the topic, but it's mostly in cardiac surgery. This would be the first study to our knowledge in non-cardiac surgery. Interesting. So is this test readily available in most laboratories? So GDF-15 is a really promising yet relatively novel biomarker. In the U.S. and Canada, I don't believe it is available yet in most clinical labs. To my knowledge, the only current approved use of GDF-15 by the FDA is in trials of weight loss associated with cancer treatment, um, since elevated GDF-15 is linked to shexia in cancer patients. But in Europe, GDF-15 is approved for uses in cardiology, such as risk prediction and stratification of patients um, currently for acute coronary syndrome and chronic heart failure. 
But hopefully, as more evidence comes out and is published on the clinical use of GDF-15, this will hopefully change in the near future. Hmm. So what was the objective of your study? So we thought that given the evidence showing the association between cardiovascular disease and GDF-15, our hypothesis was that in the perioperative setting, GDF-15 could also predict postoperative cardiovascular adverse events. And in non-cardiac surgery, identifying patients at risk of post-op events is a central component of the preoperative evaluation. And cardiac risk stratification is most commonly done using clinical risk scores. And these risk scores, albeit being widely used and validated, have been shown to have limited ability to discriminate higher-risk patients. And this is likely because risk score utilizes a point system where certain predictors, for example, past history of ischemic heart disease, will be indicated as yes or no, will be attributed a certain points to contribute to the score to then provide a risk estimate. And the issue is that is that not all, for example, past history of ischemic heart disease or other comorbidities are the same. That categorization yes and no of comorbidities doesn't reflect the spectrum of disease and associated prognosis that we see in different patients. And this is where biomarkers are really interesting. They offer kind of a window into patients' physiological response and underlying disease activity. And cardiac biomarkers in non-cardiac surgery, in particular BNP and anti-proBNP, have been demonstrated to improve risk prediction in addition to clinical risk score. And outside of the periop setting, GDF-15 was found in cardiovascular disease to add prognostic information on top of anti-proBNP, which led us to ask the question in our main objective, can we determine if preoperative levels of GDF-15 is associated with postoperative cardiac events and be useful for cardiac risk prediction in addition to already available tools? These are prospective international cohort of 5,238 patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery with overnight hospital stay, and patients were followed for 30 days. And GDF-15s was measured preoperatively in all our patients. And our primary outcome was the occurrence of myocardial injury and vascular death. So it sounds like you were able to adjust for other risk predictors of outcomes, both like historical things like the RCRI and, you know, criteria, as well as other biomarkers? Yeah. So we selected the revised cardiac risk index um, to adjust. So we the association between pre-op GDF-15 and our primary outcome was evaluated after adjusting for RCRI. And as you know, RCRI includes common risk predictors of cardiovascular outcomes, such as ischemic heart disease, heart failure, diabetes treated with insulin, chronic kidney disease, and cerebrovascular disease. And in our subset of our patient, we were able also to adjust for anti-proBNP and look for incremental predicting value. I believe this study was actually part of a larger study. So can you tell us a bit more about that original study? Yeah, participating in the studies were enrolled in the Vision and Vision Biobank studies. So the Vision studies, a large prospective international cohort, which enrolled 40,000 non-cardiac surgery patients. And the main results of the vision study have been published and were focused on postoperative cardiac events. And a subset of patients in vision also participated in the vision biobank. So as part of the biobank, patients had preoperative serum samples collected, frozen and stored. And this is on these samples that were measured, uh, was measured GDF-15. 
So can you tell us a bit more about the characteristics of the patients in this cohort and what types of surgeries? I know it was non-cardiac, but sort of the variety of surgeries that these patients were having or had. Sure. So the um, inclusion criteria for vision are the same as our study. So patients who are 45 years or older underwent non-cardiac surgery with overnight hospital stay and had regional or general anesthesia. And for specific to our study, all patients had to have a preoperative serum samples available for analysis to be included to measure GDF-15, of course. And in our subset of patients, we had well representation of cardiovascular comorbidities. Demographics half were male, about, and 20% of patients were 75 years or older, so a good proportion of older patients. Approximately half of the patients had hypertension, 20% had diabetes, and 15% a history of coronary artery disease. In terms of surgery, the most common types of surgery included um, in vision and in our study were major orthopedics, general surgery, and low-risk surgeries, all around 20 to 25% of our cohort. And a third of patients had active cancer at the time of surgery, and most were elective or semi-urgent surgeries. Only 3% were urgent or emergent surgery. So I know you mentioned briefly the outcomes that you evaluated, but can you maybe uh, tell us those again and specifically tell us what you had looked for? Yeah, so our primary outcome was a composite of myocardial injury and vascular death. And myocardial injury was defined as a postoperative troponin elevation, believed to be due to an ischemic etiology. The definition we used came from the vision study, um, or MINS, if you're familiar with that. But there could be other non-troponin T, for example, uh, elevation that could also be counted as a myocardial injury. And we also evaluated myocardial infarction, non-fatal cardiac arrest, stroke, congestive heart failure, um, new clinical significant atrial fibrillation, and all-cause mortality. And how was a vascular death defined? The definition of vascular death was defined um, as part of the main vision study, and it includes death following an MI, cardiac arrest, stroke, cardiac revascularization, pulmonary embolism, hemorrhage, and that's due to a non-known cause. And that particular one um, may seem particular, but the reason why unknown causes were considered vascular death comes from evidence that show that most sudden unwitnessed death are cardiovascular in origin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how were all the events detected? I mean, like, I know dead is dead, but were these chart reviews, were they follow-up phone calls? And then especially for the other events, um, use biomarkers or clinical assessment, or how did you, how were those detected? So they were detected as part, mainly for myocardial injury, as part of the main vision study. So in vision, all patients had troponin T, either fourth or fifth generation, fifth being high sensitivity, measured prospectively for the first three days after surgery to detect myocardial injury. So all patients in vision had troponin measure. And this is important because we know that most of these troponin elevation will be asymptomatic. So without some form of systematic surveillance, we may miss some outcomes. But in patients with troponin elevation, the results were available to clinicians effectively. So participating centers were encouraged to perform daily ECGs and assess for clinical signs or symptoms of ischemia. And all of these source documents, ECGs, troponin results, and clinical notes were sent to an independent adjudication committee that evaluated all the troponin elevations. 
first to determine if they believe there was a non-ischemic etiology for troponin elevation, in which case the troponin elevation would not be considered an event. And adjudicators also determined if the troponin elevation met the universal definition of MI. Um, for all the other outcomes, research personnel followed patients while in hospital and by phone at 30 days to determine any outcome occurrence, if they were, and source documents were sent to the project office, and all the other outcomes were adjudicated as well. How good are the current risk predictors that we have for post-op adverse events and non-cardiac surgery? Are we looking for a better one, or what are we looking for with new biomarkers? Well, there are a few. Um, I believe the most utilized ones for cardiac risk prediction specifically are the revised cardiac risk index and its QIP calculators. And for the revised cardiac risk index, it's the one that has been the most externally validated in Pretty much all the external validation studies show similar discrimination, which is moderate at best, with AUC or C statistics between 0.7, 0.75 at best, and lower than that in higher risk surgeries like vascular surgery. Um, Vision actually published a sub-study to validate RCRI uh, recently and found in 35,000 patients AUC of 0.65. But this is really just fair risk discrimination to predict cardiac events. And regarding the NSQIP risk score, which I think in the U.S. is maybe more used than RCRI, um, if we look at the initial publication, the IUC or C statistic is much higher. But the issue is the limited number of external validation study in cohorts outside of NSQIP or administrative database. And if you look at the few prospective cohorts that have looked at validating NSQIP prospectively, um, the risk scores only have fair discrimination to moderate discrimination at best. There is, we need some room for, for improvement and other tools to improve our risk prediction. So you mentioned how I think GDF15 has been looked at in cardiac surgery patients, but maybe not in other non-cardiac surgeries. Can you tell us a bit about what we already know, though, even from those cardiac studies? Yeah, so there's been a lot of studies on GDF-15, and it mostly comes from the last two decades. GDF-15 was first described around, I believe, the year 2000 with the first large clinical cohort looking into cardiovascular disease dating the mid-2000s. And there has been an increasing number of studies in various clinical settings, and they all show a strong association between cardiovascular disease and GDF-15. One of the largest study on cardiovascular outcome, and this is outside of the perioperative setting, is the PLATO trial. Um, but the PLATO trial randomized uh, 16,000 patients with acute coronary syndrome um, with the or clopidogrel, which is not relevant to GDF-15, but they found that higher GDF-15 concentration were associated with a greater burden of coronary artery disease at baseline and at 12 months. And if we look at the cardiac surgery studies, their um, knowledge has been two. One was a 500-patient cohort, and the other enrolled um, 1,500 patients approximately. And the first study found that GDF-15 was associated with one-year cardiovascular mortality and improved prediction of long-term survival in addition to the Euroscore 2, which is the most commonly used um, score in cardiac surgery. And the second study found similar results that GDF-15 independently predicted 30-day and one-year mortality and improved risk prediction in 40% of patients. But these two studies really gave us a strong argument to look at GDF-15 in non-cardiac surgery. 
So I know this was a multi-center and multinational study, and you mentioned about how there were 40,000 patients, I think, in the vision trial. But tell us how many were in your cohort, and where were all of the enrollment sites, or some of them? So we enrolled over 5,000 patients um, that all came from the Vision Biobank. And in our subset of patients, patients were enrolled from nine centers in four countries, which were Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Hong Kong. And you assessed the potential interactions between the GD15 and GFR sex and cancer. And you mentioned about how you can see this marker elevated with kidney disease as well as cancer, but I don't remember any discussion around the sex issue. And can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on those conditions and how that impacted the evaluations? When we looked at the literature, we saw that there was potential interactions reported with EGFR, as you mentioned, because it seems to be correlated with reduced function and renal function, the prognostic marker, but the question was, would it interact in terms of measurement of GDF-15? Um, sex, I think in most biomarkers, we tend to look if there's a sex interaction. It's always possible. It had been alluded to in previous studies. And cancer was also an important one because initially GDF-15, I think, was introduced and looked at more in a cancer population and eventually shifted because it was strong. It's predictive in cancer, but it really strongly is predictive in cardiovascular disease. So the literature kind of shifted, but we still had that question, would there be an interaction with cancer? So we did look and perform these interaction analysis, but in fact, we found no interaction between GDF-15 in either GFR, sex, or cancer. It didn't show up in our cohort. Hmm. Interesting. So how many patients had one of your primary outcomes, as you defined it, and how did those numbers compare to other similar studies of cardiovascular events after non-cardiac surgery? So our primary composite outcome of myocardial injury or vascular death occurred in 15% of patients at 30 days, and around 5% had the composite of MI and all-cause death. And major cardiovascular events, uh, which is the composite of all the cardiovascular events I mentioned earlier, uh, occurred in 6% of patients. The overall mortality in our cohort was 0.8%. So if we compare with the overall vision cohort, the incidences of cardiovascular events are similar, but we observed a lower mortality rate than vision. So in our cohort, 0.8% and then vision was 2%. And we look at the basal PMI cohort, it's a cohort similar to vision run in Europe, the 30-day mortality is 2.8%. So we did found a lower mortality than expected. It may be due to differences in centers and geographical variation. We have um, less low to middle income countries than in vision. But it also may be explained by the fact that we had three times less urgent and emergent surgery than in vision. And it makes sense because of biobank designs, urgent cases had to be rushed to the OR before preoperative samples could be collected. And we had to have preoperative samples available for us to conduct the study. So that's may explain the difference. here. Mm. Yes. Um, so what did you find regarding the predictive value of GDFT? So we found that preoperative GDF-15 was associated with postoperative cardiovascular event, and quite strongly, um, we identified GDF-15 thresholds um, of 1,000, 1,500, and 300, and patients with GDF-15 less than 1,000 had a 6% incidence of our primary outcome compared to 
12% for patient with GDF-15 between 1,000 and 1,500, 20% for GDF-15 between 1,500 and 3,000, and 34% for patients with GDF-15 above 3,000. So we really see a large increment in the risk of a primary outcome as GDF-15 goes up from 6 to 12%, to 20% to 34%. And when we added the GDF-15 threshold, to the revised cardiac risk index, risk discrimination was improved in one in three patients. Um, so this means that GDF-15 allowed to put patients in better risk categories based on their actual outcomes, either predicting lower risk in patients who didn't have an event and higher risk in patients who ended up having an event. And when we added anti-ProBNP to our CRI and GDF-15, there was still risk improvement with GDF-15 in one in six patients. Very interesting. Did the GDF-15 equally, was it equally good at being predictive or associated with MINS, MI, and death? Yes, all the results were really similar. GDF-15 added to our CRI in multivariable analysis was also significantly associated with the same magnitude with MI, vascular death, means major cardiovascular events. And how did it compare to the RCRI and the NT pro BNP in predicting risk? So we did found, we kind of reconfirmed the limited discrimination with using only RCRI. In our study, our AUC was 0.65, which is really just fair discrimination to mm-hmm. low discrimination. And when we added GDF-15, it improved up to 0.72, and if we look at antiprobing P plus RCRI, so no GDF-15, it actually has a similar improvement. The AUC is also 0.72. But what is interesting is when we combine the three, RCRI, GDF-15, and antiprobing P, the AUC increases to 0.75, and we're getting into better uh, risk discrimination. So antiprobing P and GDF-15 were both independently associated with our primary outcome, and the combination with clinical risk factors further improved risk prediction. Overall, your risk of death in this particular cohort was lower than I think we generally see with surgery, though vision, you know, the bigger cohort was kind of comparable and maybe even lower than some other studies. And it's ironic because I think surgery is supposed to help people, right? Um, Can you maybe compare the risk of surgery overall to other causes of death or like major adverse events? Is it riskier to be having surgery than just living every day? That's a really good point, a really good question. And why we're trying to do studies to keep making surgery safer. Um, There are over 300 million surgeries performed worldwide annually. And when we look at the analysis from the Global Surgery Commission, it suggests that at least 4 million people worldwide die within 30 days of surgery each year, which, as you're saying, is really not the goal of surgery. This accounts for almost 8% of all deaths globally. The third greatest contributor to death after ischemic heart disease and stroke. And also interesting is that the vast majority of death related to surgery occur in the post-operative period. The mortality rate in the operating room in most cohorts is less than one over 10,000. And this is likely the results of major advances in surgical and anesthetic techniques. But we kind of need now to turn our focus towards predicting and preventing post-operative complications, of which most are medical complications, if I can say in a broader sense, and with their associated mortality and 
cardiovascular are um, some of the main complications. It's interesting when I mentioned that, you know, having surgery is the third leading cause of death to, you know, lay people, they're shocked and don't believe it. And when I mentioned it though, to many physicians, I would say they're also equally surprised. Because again, it's often we see these kind of cascade of complications after surgery and trying to improve our care comes from trying to tackle these complications that look non-related to surgery and technically would completely be avoidable. Technically, a heart attack should be avoidable after surgery. We didn't intervene on the heart in talking about non-cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we put patients under such a physiological stress during surgery. And now we're operating patients that are much older, have much more comorbidities, medication. And because people now live longer, but we now offer surgery to much older patients just in our cohort one in five patients is above the age of 75. So it will come with more complication. And I think this is the new phase of surgery and why we need these studies on understanding risk, predicting and eventually preventing these complications. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, so how many of these overall perioperative deaths are attributed to cardiac complications? So the three leading causes of mortality after non-cardiac surgery seem to be cardiac bleeding and sepsis. And evidence showed that about 16, 20% of the deaths are attributable to cardiac complications. But usually these kind of complications interact with each other. As I said, the, the more complications you have on top of each other, the more risk of mortality you have, which makes sense clinically. But if you just look at kind of Cardiac complication seems to attribute to about one in fifth of the death in the population. Right. 300 million have surgery, 4 million die. Yeah. Yeah. Good number. So should we start measuring GDF15 when it becomes available in our patients? And if we do, how do you envision that it may change management based on the results? Based on our study, we found a strong association between pre-op GDF15 and post-op cardiac complications. GDF-15 significantly improved risk prediction beyond already established risk scores and biomarker that already performed well. Um, so if we just look at our study results from a large perspective cohort, there could certainly be benefit in implementing GDF-15 for pre-op cardiac risk stratification. However, the evidence remains limited in the perioperative setting. To my knowledge, it's the only study in non-cardiac surgery. And it's always good to have external validation study of new findings. Um, but it's really consistent with what we was shown in cardiac surgery. And further studies exploring the addition of GDF-15 to other surgical risk scores may also be interesting, in particular the NSQIP scores. And there's really a need for further studies on perioperative management of patients with these biomarker elevations. So we know they're at higher risk, but there still remain uncertainty on how we should manage patients with these elevations. Um, but having biomarkers, having a way to identify higher-risk patients can then enable further research on intervention trials uh, to help these patients. So hopefully, as the body of evidence continues to grow around GDF-15, it will become broadly available because currently, uh, clinicians couldn't order it uh, in Canada or the U.S. It could be used in Europe but um, hopefully this will change in the near future because really at this point, there's a lot of evidence pointing to GDF-15. And really it was our biochemist, if I can mention in our study, that honed us to said, we had a meeting at one point in vision and he said, you know, GDF-15 
look into it. And he's our cardiac biomarker expert. If you look into it, it's really an emerging biomarker. And we really were impressed with our result. And hopefully, it can become available and be used in clinical settings. I hope today's discussion will interest many of our listeners and lead you to read this important article to learn more. Thank you, Dr. Dusup, for discussing your work with us today. I wish you well as you continue your efforts to enhance the practice of anesthesiology and strive to improve the care of our patients. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Anesthesiology Journal Podcast, the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Check anesthesiology.org for an archive of this podcast and other related content. 